Good morning, brothers. It's good to be with you. We're going to be in Matthew 27 today. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. I did, uh, Lon mentioned that we just have uh, this week and two more left of this um, semester of Amen and, and left of the book of Matthew. So uh, what is it that we're going to be doing next uh, semester? I wanted to give you a little preview. I'm going to, we're going to be sending out information to the entire church, to actually every man in the church uh, over the next couple of weeks about what we're going to do in the spring. I'm very excited about it. I want you to know, even as I tell you, that we are going to be committed on Thursday mornings as usual to uh, teaching God's word uh, exegetically, looking at passages and diving deep in that. But we are going to be doing something that's going to be structured more topically rather than, um, rather than just going through the book. And this is why. This is what it is. Let me give you the bottom line. As men, we like the bottom line, right? Here's the bottom line. Bottom line is uh, we're going to do a series on the essentials of Christian manhood or what does it mean to, to be God's man. Um, more and more today, whether you're an eight-year-old boy or you're an 80-year-old man, um, we're being challenged in culture and honestly even in the church sometimes about, about what that means. There's a whole tension that exists between uh, what is considered tox- toxic masculinity and then just a confusion about, okay, well then what am I supposed to be uh, as a man? And, and is there such a thing as manhood? You know, the issues of sexuality and gender are being attacked in our world. And of course, the best way, we, we know this, the best way to deal with those things is not just so much to look at what the arguments are, although those things will come up, but it's really to look at what the truth is. You know, they tell you, you've heard this, I'm sure, that those who, uh, who deal in, um, who are experts at spotting counterfeit money uh, don't focus on studying the counterfeits. They focus on studying the real thing so they can spot the counterfeit. Um, And that's what I intend to do, Bart and I intend to do, and George in this next semester, is to spend the time from January through May and all of us gathering to look at what does it mean to be God's man. And we'll look at different things as we unpack certain passages of scripture that I think give us insights to that. And I would just say this. I, I, my letter or that's going to go out to the whole congregation, all the men in our congregation, is really just going to say, listen, we all need to gather to do this. We need to, we need to, we need to have this study. Every man in this church, frankly, every man in this city who claims the name of Christ needs to have this study. Um, not because we're the teachers, but because we need to sit before God's word and look at these things. So listen, if you have sons, grandsons, invite them. Invite them just for this semester. Say, I'm not trying to trick you to come to Amen forever. (laughs) But this next semester, spring of 2022, I think is going to be an important uh, time uh, in in the history of this Bible study, this church, and maybe other churches in this city. Listen, if you're, uh, if you have a, you know, if if your father or grandfather is not here, invite them. Like I said, I think this is going to be applicable whether you're eight years old or whether you're 80 years old. And I'm very excited. And let's all be praying, not only um, that God would gather the men that need to be here, um, but that also uh, pray for uh, Barton, myself, and George as we begin to study these things. I've already started diving into preparation for next semester, um, but very excited about that. That said, uh, we've got, we got three more weeks left in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, looking at the king and his kingdom. 
Uh, and I thought about this is, I actually thought about this when we were making the schedule uh, months and months and months ago. Is it going to be weird for us to be studying the death of Christ at the start of Advent? <laughs> Um, that's not what's usually done. Usually, even uh, whether you're preaching or doing a Bible study, you, you situate it in such a way that you're studying the, the things of Advent during this and, and not studying the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. But here we are, Matthew chapter 27. I heard this story earlier this week, or this pastor was telling the story of his young daughter, who I think was like eight years old, and she was, uh, he overheard her Um, teaching his, I guess, four-year-old son the Christmas story. And he was so proud that his daughter was telling uh, his son the Christmas story and kind of overheard her telling it. And he said that she she concluded it by saying, and they lived happily ever after. Except for this one part that I'm going to tell you about at Easter. (laughs) And I thought, yes, that's exactly it. Except for this one part that I'm going to tell you about at Easter. Is it weird for us to be studying the death of Christ during Advent? No, I actually think it's, it's excellent for us to be studying um, the birth of, I mean, uh, studying the death of Christ at Advent. It's good for us as we go through this Advent season to remember the reason he came, to remember the purpose of his mission. Um, as was prayed earlier, sometimes during this season with all the craziness of it, and I'll just let you know, um, while I certainly think it's good for us to be reflective at, during the time of Advent, I've often thought if we're going to be busy doing something, busy celebrating Christ's Advent, that's a good reason to be busy. So if there is a reason to be busy, that's a good reason. Now, should we be you know, worried, scattered, uh, overstressed, materialistic? No. Um, but I think it's okay for us to give ourselves uh, to more time to celebrate what Christ has done. Um, but sometimes in the midst of that, we miss seeing Jesus. We get caught up in all the other things. And certainly, I think we miss seeing the mission of Jesus at Christmas time. Sometimes we, 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 we forget, man, he came to save us. And what was the cost of, of that salvation? And in the passage we're about to read, Um, Certainly, we're going to see that Judas missed seeing or understanding Christ even after spending three years with him. Even after spending three years in Christ's inner circle, Judas missed understanding Jesus. Pilate, we're going to see, even though he is there questioning Christ, getting to, to actually interview the Son of God, missed understanding who Christ was, even as Pilate even says the right things. And we're going to see that. What I want more than anything has been my prayer all this week. I want us this morning, in the time that we have, I really want us to see Jesus. Tim Keller, uh, several years ago, uh, said this, and I've never forgotten it. Maybe you've heard it too. Tim Keller said, religious people find God useful. Christians find God Beautiful. This morning, as we study God's word, um, I don't just want us to find God's word or God himself or the person of Christ useful to us. More than anything, I want us to, to be able, in this beginning of Advent, to find Christ beautiful. I'm going to read like I've done in the past because we have a big chunk of scripture. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10, and we'll unpack that, and then we'll read the rest 
uh, when we get to that. So verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. What I want us to see this morning is uh, this beautiful picture of Christ, really, in, in five facets that come out of even the misunderstanding or the lack of vision that Judas and Pilate have here. And we are jumping into the middle of that whole crucifixion story. And a couple of weeks ago, before Thanksgiving, George unpacked for us the very end of Matthew 26. Um, and here they've gone, they've taken Jesus from the Sanhedrin. Remember, they want to put Jesus to death because he has claimed to be the Son of God. He has blasphemed. That's why they want to put him to death. But they know they don't have the authority to put him to death because of the Roman rule. So they're taking him into Pilate, but they've schemed together. It says there uh, that they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death in verse 1. And we learn from the more extensive or more uh, specific um, description of this in Luke chapter 23, that what they decided is, hey, if we take him to Pilate and say he's blasphemed, Pilate's going to go, I don't care. I don't even believe in your God anyways. But if we take him to Pilate and say he claims to be king of the Jews, he's an insurrectionist, hey, then he's going to put him to death. And so that's their plan. That's their counsel against him. And they're presented, he's presented to Pilate as someone who's an insurrectionist. Um, and then why, you have to ask yourself, why this interruption regarding Judas, <laughs> because everything starting from chapter 26, verse 1, really all the way through the end of chapter 27, kind of flows chronologically, but you, it wouldn't matter where you put this thing about Judas, it doesn't flow chronologically. So why did Matthew do that? What is he trying to point out? Probably what he wants to point out is the contrast between Judas, Judas's response to his sin and Peter's response to Peter's sin, because that just happens right up there before. And so what is it that we understand here? Well, first of all, I think we're seeing Judas missing the innocent one, missing that Jesus is the innocent one. The ESV, I think, here gets the translation right in verse 3. It says that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, Judas changed his mind. What we're seeing here is not repentance, but remorse. And the difference is this. Judas is really upset about the results of what he's done. But he doesn't hate his sin. And brothers, that's right there. That's an important lesson for us. Oftentimes, we are upset at the results of our sin. 
And that is remorse, that is regret, that is not repentance. Repentance is hating our sin. And here, uh, uh, Judas is upset about that. Um, and uh, it, it's not like Peter. If you notice what happens um, with Peter, uh, just a few verses before, Judas goes out and hangs himself. Peter um, wept bitterly. And there's something different here that's going on. But before we even get to that, the forgiveness offered in Christ, we need to see Jesus in this moment. And we need to see that Jesus is the innocent one. And even as Judas is, is regretful for what he's done, he proclaims the innocence of Jesus. And later on, you're going to see, where is it? In verse, uh, verse 23, even Pilate proclaims the innocence of Jesus. He says, why do you want to crucify him? What evil has he done? Everyone Brothers, everyone was aware of Christ's innocence. I know that uh, was talked about last week uh, or two weeks ago by George, this false accusation and how overwhelming that was. But let's not lose sight, not just that he was falsely accused, but that he truly, that this Christ truly was innocent, that he had lived his whole life and he had done nothing wrong. And that is important, brothers, because it was key to our salvation. It's key to our salvation that someone who had done nothing wrong would be in our place, who was completely innocent. And the reason that Jesus lived his entire life overcoming temptation, doing nothing wrong, was in order that he might be the perfect sacrifice for our salvation. His obedience every day was in order that you and I might be saved. And I don't want us to miss the beauty of that that he was the innocent one. The second thing I want us to see out of the verses that we read is that Jesus is the forgiving one. He's the forgiving one. You notice that Judas tried to get rid of the money and then he was then so distraught that he committed suicide. I mean, he's, he's upset at the results of what he's done. He didn't, he didn't think it would go this far. And so he goes back and he just, he says to the, listen, I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to do this. And they're like, we don't care. We don't care. Go deal with it yourself. In fact, that phrase, it's used twice in this passage. We'll see it again later. See to it yourself just literally means that's on you. That's on you. And he's so distraught not knowing what to do. He chunks the money into the temple. We're not exactly sure. There's different <laughs> ideas of where, what he did that, but we really don't know. He just throws the money down and he goes out and he hangs himself. It's interesting to note here too that even the uh, chief priests knew that it was blood money. Even the chief priests proclaim his innocence because they won't use that money to go into the treasury of the temple because in Deuteronomy it says you can't take money like that that's ill-gotten and put it into the treasury. And so they, they come up with a plan to somehow be able to use the money without it defiling. Because they understand and they say it, this is, this is blood money. And notice what Peter they do in contrast when he's confronted with his sin. Look at verses 74 and 75 of chapter 26. 
Then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I don't even know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas tries to fix it. And when he can't fix it, he goes out and destroys himself. Peter, broken, understanding the words of Jesus, begins to weep bitterly. Remorse versus repentance. Judas had remorse. We're going to see, if you read the Gospels, particularly at the end of uh, John, chapter, uh, John chapter 21, that Peter sought repentance Peter hated his sin, and Judas hated the results of his sin. Let me just say this. The key, brothers, to actually being to repent, being able to repent, is to actually believe that Christ can forgive you. If you don't believe that Christ can forgive you, then you seek to try to figure out a way to make yourself right on your own. And that's what Judas was trying to do. And he missed the forgiving one. He missed that Christ, and he should have known this. He was with Christ for three years, and yet he missed that Christ was the forgiving one. And because he didn't believe that he could be forgiven, because he didn't believe that Christ could offer forgiveness, he had no other choice but to try to fix it. And when he couldn't fix it, he ends up destroying himself because he, he has no way, he has no course forward. Peter, on the other hand, by the power of the Holy Spirit, understands that Christ is the forgiving one. And because Christ is the forgiving one, he can go with this horrendous, almost satanic thing that Peter has done. To deny Christ, to literally say on the night of his crucifixion, I don't know him. I mean, that's satanic. How could he be forgiven of that? He can be forgiven of that because Christ is the forgiving one. And the Holy Spirit was working in Peter in order for Peter to be able to see the forgiveness of Christ. Brothers, I don't want us to miss that. Because you and I, as we we deal with our sin, which then causes us to have shame, if you don't understand and see Christ as the forgiving one, you'll just try to fix it yourself. You'll just try to, try to do enough good things to somehow overcome the bad things. And instead of repenting, what do we end up doing? We're just regretful and remorseful. And we try to fix it ourselves. Instead of taking our brokenness and going to Christ as the forgiving one. I don't know how this looks necessarily in other, other churches around the city, but I imagine for Bible teaching churches, it looks the same Um, For us at Second Presbyterian Church, it's interesting to note that when we have our corporate prayer of confession on Sunday morning, you will always notice in there an an acknowledgement that Christ is the forgiving one. (laughs) Because again, you can't repent if you don't know that Christ is the forgiving one. Judas didn't see that. He missed that. Christ is the forgiving one. Now, let's read on. Beginning in verse 11. So we went through the Judas thing. Now, uh, let's go before Pilate. We're back to the chronology of, this, of the uh, story here. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, 
are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things testify? They testify against you. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that he, so that he, so excuse me, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast of the governor was accustomed at at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered Pilate and said to, so when they gathered Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is the Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd and saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. Three things I want us to see about Jesus in the verses that we read as we continue on what these men miss. Let's not be men who miss it ourselves. The third thing, they missed the crowned one. Notice Pilate's question. Isn't it? I've always found this fascinating. The issue of him being called the king of the Jews is brought up several times. We see it in Luke. It's the accusation uh, that he's said this, therefore uh, Pilate's going to put him to death. It's the sign over him at the cross. And yet the irony of it is it's true. (laughs) He was the king. I mean, and, and, and here we see clearly, Matthew points this out, it's the only thing Jesus answers it's the only, of all the things that are, that are yelled at him, testified against him, the only thing here that he answers to is, are you the king of the Jews? And he just basically affirms that you've said so. <laughs> he doesn't, he's not quiet, he doesn't deny it. Because all through the gospel of Matthew, we have seen him as king. He's spoken about kingdom throughout his his entire ministry. It should be obvious to everyone there, anybody who's listened to him, anybody who heard anybody talk about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. He is the, the crowned one. Why can't they see it? Why can't we see it sometimes? Because no one can imagine a king like this. No one can imagine a king like this, humbled, crucified, willing to accept this punishment on our behalf, willing to be beaten, willing to be falsely accused, not, not rising up with power. Not, this is a guy who, who worked miracles. 
This is a guy who raised people from the dead. What's he doing just standing there? Even his disciples couldn't imagine a king like this. And brothers, sometimes I think because of the cultural waters we have swum in since we were little, since we could remember, that sometimes here in our culture, we have a hard time imagining a king like this. Let me tell you what, give me even an example of why I think that is or what, how that plays itself out. It plays itself out like this. There exists in American Christendom something that doesn't really exist in Christendom and anywhere else. And that's this sense of, 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 lack of a better word, triumphalism. That, that we in the church as part of the kingdom of God will somehow just overtake and, and rule the culture and rule politics. And, and we have been blessed. It was prayed for. Thank you, Lord, for this country. And I am so grateful that I live here and grew up here. I really am. But at the same time, it is sometimes our, 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 our cultural um, blindness to understand that following Jesus means following him to a cross. That the kingdom of God on this side of heaven is often something that feels not like a kingdom at all, but like persecution and suffering because that's what Christ demonstrated on earth. Part of the reason that the Jewish people didn't quite understand him as Messiah is because when they looked back at the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they looked back at the, the triumphant at the triumphant prophecies about the Messiah. And they didn't realize they were looking at the second advent. And so they wouldn't read, they wouldn't read when it talks about he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows. They didn't see that as the Messiah. They couldn't imagine a king like that. And so when they saw Christ, they're like, this can't, this can't be him. This can't be him. This can't be right. And I know in my life, I'll just confess it to myself. Sometimes I get messed up because I feel like, well, this can't be right because I'm suffering. This can't be right because I'm experiencing persecution. When maybe, brothers, it's exactly right. Maybe we actually are walking in the footsteps of Christ. Maybe this is the pathway. And certainly if we lived in China or some other place, we would go, of course, it's the pathway. That's what they would say. This is exactly the pathway. This is the kingdom here on earth. Sometimes we don't see the kingdom. Maybe the question for us this morning is, do we see that the kingdom that this king has been crowned of is not the kingdom of this world? (laughs) It's not the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of the world to come. We can't lose sight of that. We cannot miss that. Fourthly, let's not miss that Christ is the righteous one. It's fascinating. This little, in fact, verses uh, 17, excuse me, verses 18, say that again, Todd, verses 19 and 20 should almost be put together. What's happened is that, uh, that, that this question has been put to the crowd, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ? 
And then it seems that there's this interlude, this break. I don't know if the break was caused by Pilate going, hey, you all think about it, get back to me. Or if it was because Pilate's wife came up and said, hey, I need to talk to you. I'm thinking maybe that's what happened. <laughs> hey, hey, honey, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so Pilate's like, hold on a second. And while he's doing that, the chief priests are stirring up the crowd to say, hey, we want Barabbas. They're trying to get them to do that. Meanwhile, his wife's like, she like, do not have anything to do with this righteous man. Isn't that fascinating? In a dream, he was being revealed as the righteous one. Not just that Jesus was innocent of wrong, but that he was righteous, that he was right before God. I'm astounded over and over again in the midst, particularly of this passage, where everybody who's speaking gets it right, (laughs) even as they crucify him. His wife, Pilate's wife, says he is the righteous one. He is right before, that would ultimately be right before God. Why does Christ's righteousness matter? Why does it matter that Christ is the righteous one? We've already talked about his innocence being a perfect sacrifice, but you know, it's not that he just didn't do the stuff that was wrong. It's that he actually lived the life that was right. He didn't just avoid sin. He actually sought the mission of God. Why is that so beautiful to us? Why is that so important to us? Because of this, brothers, his righteousness in in salvation, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account. It's been placed on our account. Remember what it says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21? I actually use this on purpose every time I do Every time I do a communion, I lead communion. I don't change up the verses. The reason I don't change up the verses is mostly because I want to ingrain it in my own head. I use just one uh, verse always at communion, and it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And I personally just want to remember in in that moment of my salvation at the cross and then displayed every time I take communion, every time you take communion, brother, if your life is hidden in Christ, you're reminded again that the righteousness of Christ is on your account. It's on your account. When they open up the folder of your life, it doesn't show okay, yeah, here's all the sin, and then, oh, by the way, there's this page on the front, check it out, righteousness has covered it. No, the sin is gone, it's been placed on Christ on the cross, and the righteousness of Christ has been placed on your account. You, in Christ, enjoy his righteousness. It's placed upon you, it's imputed to you. So even as you look at the righteous one, marvel Marvel at the righteousness that's been placed on you. He's the righteous one, and because he's the righteous one, and your life is hidden in Christ, then his righteousness is imputed to you today. You're like, Todd, you don't don't know what I did last night. You You don't know what I looked at on the internet. You don't know what I struggled with this week. You don't know how I talked to my wife or to my kids. You don't know um, what I did at work. 
I know he's the forgiving one, and you can repent and receive forgiveness of that. But I know more importantly <laughs> that if your life is hidden in Christ, the, the Christ's righteousness has been placed on your account. And it is a great mystery how that has all worked out. I just know that's true. So see the righteousness of Christ. See the righteous one. And understand your righteousness. And then lastly, let's not miss Christ as the anointed one. Pilate really wants out of this situation badly. In fact, if you read the Luke account, um, uh, he actually sends them, he sends them to Herod. Uh, Pilate's like, I just don't want to mess with this. And probably they say the reason he doesn't want to mess with it is because Pilate, though he had done some things when he first became governor that were pretty bold and uh, had no, had no, any cultural awareness of the Jewish people, like zero. And as he was governor of them, he was, he was doing some stupid stuff just because I'm governor, I get to do whatever I want. So he had marched in um, the, uh, the symbols um, of the Roman emperor into the city of Jerusalem and even placed in certain parts around the temple. That had caused a huge uproar. And Pilate's thinking, I don't care. It's not going to matter. And actually what happened is uh, that, that, that um, the Roman court got upset with Pilate and called him out on it. And so it's just a couple years after this time that this whole thing with Jesus happens. And so Pilate has gone from being kind of this bold jerk to going, I just don't want to get in trouble with anyone. I don't like these people, but I don't want to ruin my career. And so you'll find in the Luke account that he actually he gets Jesus. He's like, why am I in this mess? As soon as it says that he's from Galilee, he's like, oh, great, send him to Herod. So they send him to Herod. Herod sends him back. Pilate's like, I got him again. What am I going to do with him? He's just trying to figure a way out of it. And in trying to figure a way out of it, he introduces this trade for Barabbas. And he's thinking, you know what? I mean, Barabbas is a convicted criminal. Everybody knows that this guy is a murderer. And I know from what I heard about the, the earlier in the week that a lot of people in the crowd were praising Jesus, singing Hosanna to him, and they'd like him. If I just make this trade, we can all get out of it, and I don't have to deal with these chief priests who are stirring up the crowd, and I can just go back to doing what I'm doing and not have to deal with any of this. Totally missing <laughs> the anointed one, even though he says it twice. Notice he says in verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ, which means the anointed one? And earlier he had said in verse 17, I can release to you Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one. It's interesting to note that they crowd chooses to put Jesus to death. Pilate absolves himself of any choice, and in doing so, he actually makes a choice because he could have, he had the power. He had the power to say, this man is innocent. We're not putting him to death. And so while Pilate would say, well, I, you know, I actually, I actually left it up to them, and he actually uses that same phrase that the chief priests use Verse 24, see to it to yourselves, this is on you, which is why they say his blood will be on us. But Pilate made a choice. Pilate made a choice. 
He basically chose Jesus to his death. And both the crowd and Pilate missed the gravity of this situation. Obviously, the crowd does. They say something that is scary. I get unsettled every time I read verse 25. And the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They didn't miss, they they completely missed the gravity of this. But brothers, this was not random. The choice of Christ to go to crucifixion was not random. In John chapter 17, when Jesus is speaking, he says, I'm the one who lays down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I pick it up again when I want to. What took place here was not some random moment. This was truly the anointed of God. He was the chosen one. He was chosen by the triune God for this moment. And though the crowd made a choice and Pilate made a choice, this was not a random thing. This was meant to be. This was the mission of Christ all along. I will lay down my life. Jesus was the anointed one, the chosen one. And when Pilate says, Jesus, who is called the Christ. He's just trying to trick the crowd. Only what is he doing? The irony is he's naming exactly what's happening. He is the Christ. And make make no mistake, brothers, that's not a mistake that that was said. Do you see it? Everybody got the words right. Everybody got the word. You're the innocent one. You're the righteous one. You're the king of the Jews. You're the Christ, the anointed one. Everyone got it right and they missed it. They missed it. Brothers, I don't want to miss it today. I don't want to miss it at Advent. I don't want to be so caught up in the busyness of my life that I miss seeing the beauty of Christ. I don't want to be so caught up in the practicality of of my daily living the practicality of my job, the practicality of taking care of my wife, the practicality of making sure, you know, that my lawn is mowed, that I miss the beauty of Christ. I want to get so caught up in the practicality of my relationships that I miss the beauty of Christ. I don't want to get caught, so caught up in the practicality of what I feel like my needs are that I miss the beauty of Christ. And so let's be committed to that. Let's, let's even pray. Let us pray. Father, this Advent season, teach me one more thing about your incarnation. Teach me one more thing about Jesus. Let me see him. Let me really see him by the power of your spirit. May that be the blessing of our Advent. We don't miss Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth and the power of your word. Thank you for the clarity of what we saw here. Father, we know, we know that it is not because we are more wise than Pilate or Judas. It's not because we are more 
intelligent, clever. It's not because we're better. We know it's only because you, you chose us. It's only because you opened our eyes to see you. Oh, Father, please, may you continue to make it clear who you are. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for your imputed righteousness. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for being the chosen one who went to the cross for us. We thank you for being the king whose kingdom will come. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's men said, amen.